This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 53, September 16, 1983. I'm glad to be back here again. I was on the road in Washington, D.C. and in uh, Atlanta for the Atlanta Christian Training Seminar, where I was very happy to see a number of you. I was in Washington, D.C. because of a religious liberty case. The Maranatha Campus Ministries, an exceptionally fine group, is facing hostility on the part of some, and in particular one state university administration. Some of their students are being kidnapped and being deprogrammed. We are seeing this kind of thing increasingly. Any humanist whose son becomes converted to Christianity is going to have his son deprogrammed. If it is to Catholicism or to Protestantism or to whatever, the child or young person is going to be deprogrammed brutally. Now, I do not believe in deprogramming. What they do is to abuse and intimidate the young man or woman, and in some instances, the girls have been raped. We are facing an increasing and savage hostility to any conversion to Christianity, and it is classified as being converted to a cult. I'm going to discuss a book now that is very important. It's the second book on the subject which I have read in recent years. It is a book which I believe is now out of print. The title is The Sack of Rome by E.R. Chamberlain, C-H-A-M-B as in boy, E-R-L-I-N, published in London by Batsford in 1979. Now, the reason for my interest in this book is that although the author believes that the sack of Rome was a unique event, the last of its kind in history, the reverse is the true. At this point, Chamberlain, in an otherwise fine book, is at fault. We have seen sacks, for example, the Russian Revolution, before that the French Revolution, various minor revolutions. During the last two world wars, what we had amounted to the sack of a number of cities. Moreover, we have had the sack or looting of cities on a minor scale and a number of disturbances in this country and abroad as well. When the power went off in New York, the city was, in some areas, extensively sacked or looted. We are increasingly in a time when, because of the erosion of character, the loss of Christian faith, we have barbarians in our midst, and as a result, we have sacking or looting. Now, in the case of the sack of Rome in 1527, we had the imperial army of the emperor Charles V, some 20,000 men, begin their assault 
on Rome. Rome was radically unprepared for the assault. The lack of preparation was due to an unbelief that anyone would sack Rome. It had been a while since any such thing had happened. Moreover, the cardinal in charge of that sort of thing, Armelino, was a very corrupt man. And no effort was made to remedy obvious faults. For example, there was a complete break in the walls of Rome at one point but that was on private property belonging to a wealthy man, so they didn't touch it. They took care of the problems in the wall elsewhere. When Rome was seized, the Pope and others took refuge in the castle San Angelo. They found that instead of being filled with food, Cardinal Armelino had misappropriated the funds so they were not prepared for a siege. But let's back up first and look at the situation. The papacy had for some time been uh, a corrupt papacy. The control of the College of Cardinals was in the hands of the monarchs and the emperors. As a result, it was virtually impossible for a good man even to have consideration as a pope. It had not been too long before that Alexander Borgia had been a pope. And by the way, the problem at the time of the sack of Rome was that Henry VIII was applying to Clement VII, the pope, for a divorce. Not too long before, Alexander had given a divorce to his daughter, Lucretia Borgia. So this kind of thing was not unusual. It was the circumstances that Catherine of England was the aunt of Emperor Charles. And that was the problem. Now, this doesn't mean that Emperor Charles was tender towards his relatives. If I may digress a little more, his mother, called Joanna the Mad, was the proper monarch for Spain. But she had undergone some very traumatic events. She was, uh, let us say, at the very least, uh, not a very stable person, nor was her sister Catherine of England. But then they had experienced some things that would have made anyone uh, unstable. Their father, Ferdinand, was a sore trial to a very remarkable woman, Isabella of Spain. Joanna had uh, suffered at the hands of her father, who almost certainly was the poisoner of her husband. Now, um, the poisoning was due to the fact that uh, Ferdinand did not want to turn over most of his realm to his son-in-law and daughter. Well, that was enough to make any woman disturbed. And certainly, Joanna behaved at times very irrationally, including her wild belief that somehow her dead husband would be uh, brought back to life with her intense praying. However, there is a great deal that indicates that everything was done to drive her mad.
and she lived into her 70s almost as long as her son uh, did. And by right should have been at least the co-ruler. So Charles uh, really had no uh, gripe against Henry VIII about mistreating his aunt. His treatment of his mother was hardly exemplary. So the situation was a very bad one. Well, uh, here you had a situation where you had France under Francis I seeking to control the papacy. There was a Medici Pope, Clement VII. The Medicis historically had been close allies of France. Hence, Spain was inclined to be radically suspicious. You had Charles V attempting to control the papacy. As a matter of fact, we must realize that uh, Charles V had as his grandfather the Emperor Maximilian. We are very much in need of a good book on Maximilian bringing into focus some of the materials that have been uncovered, which among other things tell us that Maximilian planned to make himself the Pope, to eliminate the Vatican, combine the emperor and papacy offices. As a matter of fact, this kind of thinking was also in the mind of Charles. For example, on page 196, we read, um, and I quote, almost the same post that brought Charles news of the sack of Rome brought him a letter which made a mockery of his claims that he regretted what had happened. The writer has never been identified but was certainly close in the emperor's confidence. Quote, we expect that your majesty will give us accurate instructions so that we may know how you intend governing Rome henceforward and whether some form of apostolic chair is to remain or not, unquote. The writer was doubtless only thinking aloud. Further on in his letter, he stated politely but firmly, quote, I will not conceal from your majesty the view of some of your servants who hold that the sacred chair in Rome should not be utterly and entirely abolished, unquote. But the fact that he dared place such a subject upon paper argues forcefully that Charles' inner circle of advisers were perfectly well aware of the direction of their sovereign's thought. To abolish the sacred chair, to dismantle that papal monarchy which for more than a thousand years had striven to dominate Europe and with Europe, Europe's anointed emperor, this must have been a powerful and enduring temptation for Charles. It would have been so easy, too, to give this drastic political action the appearance of a purely altruistic religious duty, unquote. Now, this is a very important point. But for the Reformation, it is quite possible that such a develop might, development might have taken place. Because with the emperor controlling Europe and with the various monarchs wanting an independence, which with the Reformation some of them took, 
It provided an ideal situation when all Europe was Catholic to dispose of the Pope and control all Europe through the office of Emperor-Pope or in some way to nationalize all the churches. This is what the concordats that Spain and Austria and France had gained from the Vatican previously were all about. The move was to nationalize the church throughout Europe. Well, at the time of the Reformation, the Pope had been Leo, a Medici, and Leo X was a man who gutted the wealth of the Vatican. He made it the greatest era in history for artists. He was the great patron of the arts, and the Vatican became a center of wealth, of entertainment, and of artists, and the artists reveled in it. He left the running of the Vatican to a very competent cousin who was Giulio de' Medici. Now let's back up a bit. Alexander Borgia is a pope who is remembered for his moral evils. But there was one thing about Alexander Borgia which must be noted. His son Cesar, by the way, was a very evil man and even his father was afraid of him. But Alexander Borgia was an exceptional administrator. To this day, the Vatican bears the stamp of Alexander Borgia. He was the kind of man who, in our day, would be a superb corporate executive. So that the Vatican was greatly strengthened by Alexander Borgia because it was able to function administratively. Order was brought out of chaos. Now, Leo X made his cousin, Giulio, the vice-chancellor, which really meant deputy pope. And Giulio was exceptionally good. He was almost unerring in his choice of wise men for every office in his ability to see issues properly and to make the proper recommendations to Pope Leo. In fact, had his counsel been followed more faithfully, things would have been all the better for Leo and the Vatican. Now, when Leo died and left a bankrupt uh, papacy, financially and morally bankrupt, Someone from Utrecht, Hadrian, was chosen. Now, Adrian, or Hadrian, was universally hated by everyone in uh, Rome. Their regard for him was one of contempt. They celebrated when he died. The reason, of course, was that Adrian went there First, he was a foreigner, and the Italians hated foreigners. They were only to be milked. And second, he brought in austerity, trying to bring the uh, Vatican out of its financial mess. 
He only lived a very few years, and Rome celebrated at his death and promptly elected a man they thought would restore the regime of Leo, another Medici. Now, the simple fact is they were totally unrealistic. There was no way the old order could be restored. The Vatican was bankrupt, and Julio, as Clement VII, knew it. He had an uphill task, but there was a significant fact here that had a great deal to do with the future. As long as Clement VII, as Julio, had been under his cousin, his ability to assess issues and problems was superb. He did not make the decision. He analyzed it, made a sound recommendation, and passed it on to Leo. Then the fault was Leo's if he didn't follow Clement or Julio. The same was true of his appointments. They were unerringly good, so that if he recommended a man to his cousin, you knew that man had to be good. Once Julio became pope as Clement VII, his judgment was almost uniformly bad. He only made one good appointment, Castiglione, whom he sent to the court of Charles V and never supported. He used him only as a facade. When the ultimate decision was in the hands of Clement VII, he proved to be totally incapable of making a right decision. Now, this is not an uncommon uh, fault in many people. They are able in a secondary position, but when they take over, they are incompetent. Let me add, and I don't want any letters on this, I discussed this with my wife first, and she emphatically agreed, so <laughs> you can fight with her on this. <laughs> the uh, fact is that... Uh, this is part of the superb ability of women and also their weak point. A wife is almost infallible if she's a good woman in the counsel she gives to her uh, husband. In fact, she can be sometimes disgustingly right <laughs> over and over and over again. But when the decision is hers, that responsibility affects her judgment. Now, it was that way with Clement VII. On top of that, instead of making wise decisions, he suddenly turned Machiavellian. He made the statement, and I quote, as a conscientious man, I ought to act as you tell me, but I see the world reduced to such conditions that the most cunning is revered as the most worthy of honor. And people say of him who acts otherwise that he is a good-natured fellow but worth nothing, and so he is left alone. The imperialists will first establish themselves in Naples, then in Lombardy and Tuscany. They will make terms with Florence and Ferrara and with you, the Venetians, and also 
while I shall remain a good-natured man but plundered to the last farthing and unable to recover anything of my own, I repeat, I see perfectly that the way you point out ought to be the right way. But I tell you also that in this world the idea does not correspond with reality, and he who acts from amiable motives is nothing but a fool." Unquote. So Clement VII, who had been a strictly honorable man, felt as Pope that he ought to be a devious and Machiavellian man. And as a result, he befuddled the monarchs. He tried to give both Charles and Francis the impression that he was on their side. He betrayed every one of them again and again, although basically he was a little more inclined to be favorable to Francis. As a result, he angered everyone. They began to hate him with a passion. And a vengeful spirit, therefore, was created, especially among the imperial troops. Well, on top of this, Rome was morally decadent and also unrealistic. It had no sense of reality. The attitude in Rome was that uh, they were immune like the Jews of old who told Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is with us. So the Romans felt they could do anything and escape God's judgment and man's as well because, well, the Vatican is here. It wound up with so much duplicity and double dealing that uh, at one point Charles V cried out with rage, and then the die was cast, and Rome was to be sacked. Charles said, and I quote, I will go into Italy myself and be revenged upon that villain of a pope. Martin Luther, perhaps, was not so far wrong, unquote. Now, I spoke of the moral condition of Rome. Well, let us see what uh, it was like. First of all, when the time came to defend the city, the Vatican sent out a call for the rich to come forward and contribute so they could rebuild the walls and they could hire troops. And at the end of the appeal, the first man who came forward was Domenico Massimi who was reputed to be the richest man in Rome. And he could have paid out of his own pocket for the entire garrison as long as it was needed and have hardly felt it. His personal staff in a new palace, which contained a fortune in works of art, had a personal staff of over 500. His daughter's dowries were in the thousands of ducats. But he came forward and handed over 100 ducats. And the other leaders of Rome came over and gave in like proportion. 
The fact is, as Chamberlain says, the people, rich and poor, were alienated from reality. Well, they paid a price for it in their lives, in the massive rape, and so on. Now, the Venetian ambassador had remarked about the character of Rome, and I quote, Almost all the native inhabitants of Rome are without a trade, whence almost all live in poverty, for which reason the women mostly sell their honor very easily and also that of their young daughters. This is, dishonor is, for the most part, the result of need. End of quote. Now, uh, there was a great deal of wealth in Rome, and the poor of Rome, everybody, lived off pilgrims. But uh, to understand the statistics on uh, prostitution in Rome, this Venetian ambassador said there were 30,000 in the city in 1524. Now, some have said this is an impossible total because the population was under 80,000, which would have meant that every female, as Chamberlain said, between the ages of 10 and 70 sold her sexual favors. The fact is that many of these were from all over Europe, and there was one, according to a census, even from uh, Turkey. But... Rome was corrupt. The cardinals were political appointments related to the monarchs and the emperor as far as policy was concerned, and as a result, the Vatican was walking a tightrope always between the various monarchs, in particular, especially between France and the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, as a result of this, the city fell readily. There was no real defense. And as a consequence, the mercenaries took over. Now, we must remember that in those days, an army received minimal pay, and in this case, virtually none. Their main pay was in the form of looting and rape. Let me add that the last two world wars have seen a revival of this kind of thing, far more than anyone in the press has ever told us, so that we are moving back to the same kind of warfare. Well, as a result, you had these troops ready uh, to move. The camp followers numbered thousands also. Camp followers were prostitutes. They were uh, beggars. They were criminals. They followed the army in the hopes of sharing in the loot. The first plundering and rape and killing was mostly the work of camp followers. And Chamberlain calls them the human hyenas that tagged behind all armies and as often as not of citizens, local citizens, who had a grudge to settle. And yet it was a first sinister herald of what was to come, 
the first unqualified indication that what had happened was not simply a diplomatic reversal, but a totally military defeat, which put some 90,000 people at the very slender mercy of their conquerors, unquote. Well, for three months, Rome was sacked, unbelievably sacked. The army was made up primarily of Spaniards, then Italians, and then Germans. Ironically, according to Chamberlain, the uh, Germans were the most merciful, partly because, he says, the German soldiers had less imagination than the Italians and Spaniards, did not devise like means of torture, and were naively ready to believe people when they said they didn't have anything. Moreover, a very curious fact is this, and I quote, at the church of San Lorenzo in Panisperna, uh, they fell into the hands of a group of Germans. Robbery followed by rape of the young and attractive and murder of all might reasonably have been expected to be their fate. These are Catholic nuns. Instead, the Lutheran Landsknechts took these Catholic nuns under their protection, defending them not only against fellow Lutherans, but also against Spanish and Italian Catholics. Sister Arsola's experience was unusual, but not unique. Of the three races, the Germans were marginally the more human. In the destruction of Rome, the Germans showed themselves to be bad enough. The Italians were worse, but the worst of all were the Spaniards. A citizen of Narmi reported of his scarifying adventures in Rome. But others were prepared to give the Germans their due. It was observed in some cases that the Lutheran Germans showed more pity being prepared to defend the virtue of women, an observer remarked. Although he could not resist adding caustically, it was enough for them to lay their hands on booty. He agreed with the man from Narni that the Spaniards were worst of all, practicing unheard of tortures to force their victims to disclose where they had hid their money. The one class of persons who suffered more than any others during the first few hours were the younger, poor women. But after that, of course... All of them were involved. And ironically, the Spaniards were the worst in the matter of sacrilege. Uh, it was Spanish troops, writes Chamberlain, who broke open the tomb of the great Pope Julius II, dragging the corpse out of his 14-year-old grave, 14-year grave, in order to plunder it. The more naive Germans were taken in by the claims of the Papists they affected to despise. Sebastian Schertlin got hold of the rope, thick enough for the neck of a polyphemus, with which Judas was supposed to have hanged himself, and despite all financial offers, insisted on taking it home with him. Nearly a hundred years later, it was still in the church of Schorndorf with a label proudly announcing its origins, and so on. The uh, German troops were ready to save relics and the Spaniards to destroy them. 
Well, after the original looting, then the torture began of people to reveal where they had hidden other treasures. The wealthy had gotten the idea of a very good hiding place to throw it into the septic tanks. Well, when the Spaniards and Italians found out about it, they drove them into the septic tanks to start diving for the treasures and very often drowned them in it afterwards. So there was no relief. The invaders made then the mistake of looting the farmers who brought food into the city. So before long, there was hunger, and noble women were sold for prostitution purposes for one egg each. And so it continued on and on. Well, the emperor did nothing to call the troops off. The pope wanted to buy them off to go away, but he didn't have the funds to do it, only with difficulty raising enough finally from here and there to buy them off so they would leave. But with all the dead bodies and the looting, the, the disorder, plague also broke out. So that the situation in Rome was a nightmare. Now, I called attention earlier to the fact that Charles had been thinking quietly, as his grandfather had, about removing the papacy, working out something else. The shock of horror that went all over Europe, Protestant and Catholic, at what the imperial troops had done to Rome necessitated some kind of change of attitude. So that, of course, Spain began to say that the troops were out of control because some of them, and minority of them, were Germans and Lutherans. But it meant there had to be a change of tactics with regard to the future of the church. So that when finally uh, Charles compelled the Pope to sign a peace treaty on November the 26th. It was uh, a treaty with a particular angle to it. It seemed on the face of it generous. After all, for publicity purposes, Charles needed to be. It restored the papal cities and territories now thoroughly uh, looted to the Vatican. In return, Clement had to swear to be neutral, to pay the outstanding ransom, and to ag agree to a council for the reformation of the church. This was the Council of Trent. The whole purpose of the Council of Trent, which I believe lasted about 35 years, 
was simply to accomplish in another way the imperial program. And that was to break the back of the Vatican. Now, the papacy, as a result, both under Clement and his successors, dragged their heels at Trent and did everything to stall the council, to await some kind of weakening of Spanish imperial power so that they could avoid what would be a de facto destruction of the papacy. Now, as it worked out, it was a standoff, but from there on, the papacy was effectively controlled by the Holy Roman Emperors. The Vatican was only able to revive in power and to free itself when Napoleon destroyed the Holy Roman Empire. Napoleon then tried to subjugate the Vatican to his own goals virtually made the Pope his prisoner. And by the way, the papacy had become so poor by that time that I believe one of the popes at that, in that era was crowned with a, papal ti a paper tiara. Everything else had been sold or hawked. But with the fall of Napoleon, the Vatican began to revive. And since then, uh, has had a very interesting history. The development of papal power culminating in the First Vatican Council. Then in Vatican II, the rebellion of the bishops to a degree so that now a different approach was taken which led to the chaos under John and Paul VI. And now the attempt of John Paul II to uh, heal the wounds, bring the church together, and affect some kind of restoration of both faith and authority. Well, the sack of Rome thus has had influences which are still with us. But the sack of Rome is important for us to know something about because we are seeing the same kind of thing rise in our day. After all, what did Saigon endure but a sack of looting? This is becoming increasingly a commonplace fact. Well, now to go on to another uh, book. This one is in print, and I urge you to get it. It is Inside the Soviet Army by Viktor Suvorov. S-U-V-O-R-O-V, -O -O published at 1595 by Macmillan in New York in 1982. The copyright is in 1982, but I don't think it was actually released till early this year. It is an account of the Soviet military power by a high-ranking Russian officer who defected to the West. It is a very important book, dedicated, by the way, to Vlasov, one of the defecting generals of World War II. 
An important point he makes is that internal crises increase the aggressiveness of the Soviet Union, and we know their internal crises are increasing. The point made by Suvarov is that the Soviet army is a powerful fighting force. Its morale is not good, but its abilities are exceptionally good. It has no food resources. It needs a very short war. But on the other hand, as far as nuclear war is concerned, the Soviet Union believes in a war with the United States the only thing to do is to lead off with their most powerful weapons first of all, with a first strike. They recognize very clearly that they need a short war because of the food angle and therefore it has to be over quickly, as quickly as they can make it. He says the war must be as short as possible. Socialism is unable to feed itself from its own resources. The Soviet variety is no exception to this general rule. Before the revolution, Russia, Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia all exported foodstuffs. Nowadays, they have not enough reserves to hold out from one harvest to the next. Yet shortage of food leads very quickly to manifestations of discontent, to food riots, and to revolution. Remember what happened at Novocherkask in 1962. Throughout the Soviet Union in 1964 and in Poland in 1970 and 1980, if socialism is unable to feed itself in peacetime when the whole army is used to bring in the harvest, what will happen when the whole army is thrown into battle and when all the men and vehicles at present used for agriculture are mobilized for war? For these reasons the communists are forced to plan any adventures they have in mind for the second part of the year for the period when the harvest has already been brought in and to try to finish them as quickly as possible before the next season for work in the fields comes around." Unquote. Now, as they have read our material on war, they have concluded for a long time that the United States is deluding its people. How can they talk about, as they do, saving their nuclear weapons for the latter stages of a war. The United States talks about a war which will begin very slowly, escalate step by step, and only at the last stages in desperation will nuclear weapons be used. That's the thesis of Washington. That's the thesis, at least, of the administrations we've had, all of them. The Soviet Union cannot imagine a long-scale war. They can't wage it. It has to be a quick knockout. At first, they concluded we were deluding our people with that kind of talk to reassure the American population we would not admit to what was going to take place immediately. Then, as they studied our deployment of nuclear weapons, it suddenly dawned upon them 
that we actually planned to do it. We were crazy enough to do that. That was their attitude. Because what they realized as they studied the deployment of American nuclear missiles and weapons was this, that we were deploying the weapons to protect the weapons through the war years, but not to protect Washington or the American people. In other words, we're going to preserve our weapons and let the country go. And they decided we were insane. And Savarov said, very few American pictures are shown in the Soviet Union films. But he said he had an opportunity to see a few, and he studied them closely. And he suddenly came to realize how revealing they were of the American character. These were Westerns. And he said in the Western fil film, Gary Cooper or some other player who is the good guy, the sheriff, or whatever, goes into town where a killer is waiting to kill him and probably has men who are hiding up on the rooftops who are going to ambush him to make sure he's killed. But what does he do? He walks right into the center of town, down the street, where there are people who can shoot at him from all angles. And he doesn't even reach for his gun until the villain does. And he says then, miraculously, he gets the villain and he turns around and shoots the man on the rooftop over here and the man over there. And by a miracle, he comes out on top. And he said, this is the American way. They actually believe in real life that they're going to pull this off in a war with the Soviet Union. And he concludes it's crazy. Zavarov does not see much hope for us because we are so unrealistic. But he felt he had to come here because for a little while in his life he had to have freedom. Well, I commend that book to you. While I was in Washington, D.C. this Sunday and Monday, I had the opportunity Monday to pick up the Washington Times and the usual pleasure of reading John Lofton's column titled John Lofton's Journal. And uh, it's a delight. Uh, John, I enjoy your things. I wish I were where I could read your columns regularly. Well, it's about Barbara Honiger, who is very critical of the Reagan administration and its policies towards women, and she left the administration recently, thank God. At any rate, uh, John Lofton takes Barbara Honiger apart. Uh, Barbara Honiger has a degree in parapsychology, and in one of her uh, documents, this is what she says as Lofton reports it. On a 1974 trip to England, she stays at the home of a friend. During the night, an inexplicable chill overtakes her, and she sees through an opening in the 
drapes three stars, which are the belt of the great hunter Orion, who walks the night sky with his dog Canis Major. Stunned, she says, by the coincidence of this constellation framed by the drapes as if flanked by stars, Honegger's heart starts to beat quickly as she turns on the light and sees an abstract painting with three circles and a diagonal line. Later she goes out to eat breakfast, and there on her plate is something unusual, a strip of bacon, in the middle of which are three very large, nubby white pieces of gristle in a perfect diagonal line. On the way to Shakespeare's grave, a piece of paper blows against her shoe. On it, a family crest containing three stars in a row. The next two weeks, she says, she spent communing with ancient Megaliths. For the next three years, Honegger played the role of a cosmic Sherlock Holmes, trying, she says, everything I could think of to unearth the meaning of the three stars. She investigates George Washington's ancestral crests, etc. And so on. She interviews a doctor, uh, and she meets a theoretical physicist who tells her that the one fact we should burn into our minds about the universe is the absolute significance of the number, 137. The number is the basis of the physical or secular order of the world because it is the probability with which the most frequent event in nature occurs. There is, we are told, a probability of 1 137 that whenever two electrons come together in space, they will emit a photon of light. But of course, you knew this already, right? Anyway, when this probability is drawn on paper, it looks like the belt of Orion. Moving right along, Honegger tells us about the many occult references to the dog in the dog star uh, Sirius. The famous mystic Gurdjieff, for example, a real nut, by the way, has been recorded by close disciples as having repeated the cryptic injunction, bury the dog deeper. You know, people used to pay a fortune to go and sit under Gurdjieff, who may have been a man with a quiet sense of humor and a con operator, otherwise a nut if he didn't do it deliberately. And he'd come up with profound bits like bury the dog deeper, and they'd go away and meditate on these pearls of wisdom. And there was a curious link between Sirius and the Mark of the Beast in the Bible's book of Revelation. Honegger writes, quote, Though current renditions refer to this mark as 666 scholars have suggested for complex reasons, the, the, that the original reference was to 616. Sirius is the nose of the constellation, Canis Major the dog. A cursory look at any dog's nose will reveal that the nostrils and center crease can be represented as a palindromic number of a beast. A dog's nose is black, and one of the most fascinating recent astronomical revelations about the Sirius star system is that it is almost certainly that it, that it is almost certain that one of the stars in the system is a black hole. According to theoretical physicists, it may be possible through a black hole to travel to a different place and time in the universe, as the Egyptians claimed the Syrians did. Unquote. 
Later, when she leaves Anderson's office to go to the restroom, as she stands in front of the bathroom door, Honegger places her finger in the letter O and the word women. The moment she does this, the light flickers on and off, and she is stunned when for the first time she realizes the word women contains the word omen. As Honegger stands before the word W blank men, she says these associations race through her mind. The mark of the beast, 616, the nose of the dog, Sirius, the three stars, 137, the Masons, Egypt, the first president of the United States, her pen name, and Ronald Reagan. What all of these had in common was one thing, light. The beast is Lucifer, the light giver. The nose of the dog is a star. The three stars are light. One one hundred and thirty-seventh is the probability of the emission of light. The central image in the Washington crest is the three stars. D Damien is the beast, and so the light giver. And so Ronald Reagan must also be the light. As I am reading all of this, I am sitting in the lobby of the Homestead Hotel in Hot Springs, Virginia, John Lofton writes and talk about uncanny coincidences. To my right are three giant columns adjacent uh, to which are three hanging light fixtures. Also to my right is a couch with three pillows on it. At the end of the lobby, a hotel employee is telling someone on the phone this, no, no, no. Notice the word no is repeated three times. Straight ahead of me, nearer the ceiling, are three square designs inset into the wall. Suddenly the clock strikes eleven, which is the number you get when three is either subtracted from fourteen or added to eight. A group of three people walks in front of me, each person taking exactly three steps to cover the space in my line of sight. My nose itches. I rub it to the left, to the right, to the left three times. All of this can mean only one thing. This column has run out of space. <laughs> Thank you, John. And here's a word of wisdom from all of you. Gurdjieff said, bury the dog deeper. And I will add, don't bury the dog if he is alive. Now that's wisdom. So much for all of these people. A number of other things I planned to share with you, but uh, I'll reserve them for another time. It's been good to be with you again, and uh, I have a number of things in mind for the next time. I had a story I intended tell you, but for some reason it escaped me. But if I think of it between now and the next time, I most certainly will tell you. Oh yes, I remember what it was. Yes, yes. And, uh, oh, what is his name? Red Buttons is the source of this. When God presented Eve to Adam after taking a rib from his side. Adam looked at her dubiously and he went off and the next day he came back hunting for God. And when he found him he said, Lord, I've got more ribs. Have you got more broads? 
<laughs> and uh, he told this story also. This was on a TV program. When Moses came to the Red Sea crossing, there was the water of the Red Sea in front of him and the Egyptians pounding away behind him, racing towards him with their cavalry. So he turned to the elders of Israel nervously and he said, Boys, put on your galoshes. I haven't tried this trick before. Well, with that, I'll say goodbye and see you in a couple of weeks.